welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Okay, we are recording for Contrarians Corner. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I am all right, and I am joined by my co-host, who is also all right. Julio, how are you doing this fine Wednesday evening? Uh, well, you know, daddy's all right, mommy's all right. <laughs> the Contrarians. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm, do- I'm doing fine. I've I've survived two days, three days now of... Uh, this water, is our third day. Our of third our, day. Is, uh, the wa- the Austin water crisis of 2018. Yes. How will we ever survive boiling water? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, our water's all fucked up because all the rain we got. It, I guess it kind of mixed up all the silt in the ground or something. And I, it's coming in at too fast a rate for our water plants to filter so well, it's a mixture of that and austinites just using way too much water <laughs> in their daily life so. dude i cannot stop thinking about when i each day i wake up and see it the scene and this is the end when dana mcbride wakes up and doesn't know there's the shortage and just has the water bottles dumping them on his head <laughs> that's your average austinite i think that's it. that's what i think everyone was doing last week and now they're just like fucking uh uh fury road there's still like washing off taking daily showers uh just to wash off all the mud from acl (laughs) so uh this couldn't have happened at a worse time i just assumed you couldn't shower so i went two days without showering and my mom was like no you can shower it's like oh well this was a good excuse it lasted while it could hey at least you you were definitely not part of the problem (laughs) yeah there you go uh i mean this is this episode will be dropping november 1st so maybe by then things will have come back to normal it's possible. And it's supposed to be another two weeks. In, in true American fashion, we'll have already forgotten about the problem. <laughs> we'll be back to overwatering our plants and everything. But. Um, that's right. I'm <laughs> proud you bring that up as the legal American that you are. Uh, we are here today. We got through the month of October with all of our spooks and scares. I hope you all enjoyed our first commentary track on Halloween 5. That one was a blast to record, as I'm sure you guys could hear and shine through. If you're not, uh, there will be a discussion uh, about the new Halloween yes. after we're done with all the, the official business in this episode. Yeah, so we'll have a shortened version of plugs to, to leave way for our Halloween discussion. So if you haven't seen it want to, don't worry. The spoilers aren't going to come for another hour or so. We are here today hopping into the uh, holiday months, November and December. So it's about family, family ties. That's how we start off. It's also award season. It, it, we're getting there, absolutely. And man, you want to talk about one that bro- them in. broke the bank? Uh, we're here today to discuss the 2010 um, critical darling, and uh, 
social <laughs> butterfly supernova that is the kids are all right at uh, towering 93 percent it's uh, basically a story about how lesbians have problems too well, lesbians have, pro- have problems too, and, and men uh, are evil. And, and men are evil. <laughs> the, men the biggest, the men biggest ruin those, everything. The biggest of those problems, uh, men. <laughs> men, boo. <laughs> not even, not even if you're Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, does he does he go for it? Um, before we get into it, if this is your first time listening, one welcome and thank you. And. Our podcast is in two parts here. Uh, our whole mission statement to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. We always start off with Contrarian's Corner, where we find a movie that's either certified fresh or one of those big splotches of green, and we argue our case against the general consensus. If you want to know what we really think, this will be in the second half, what we refer to as real talk. Uh, for this particular episode, for myself, I'm not too sure that the two sides are going to differ too much. If uh, If you've been listening for a while, then you already know how how Alex feels about the kids are all right. I think I've been more cautious about what I say about the movie because I I hadn't seen it since it came out. Unlike Alex, I don't own it. Hey, we all make mistakes. That That's halfway through the movie. That's why I told her. It was like, fucking joke's on me. I own it. Uh, in looking at the box, it, it was a rental copy. So I was led to believe I must have got that in one of the clearinghouse sales at Blockbuster when they were like... Ten for one dollar, trying to get rid of everything. Please come into our store. <laughs> we got to get rid of these six thousand copies of the kids are all right. Uh, okay, so starting off here at ninety three percent, this is a whopper. So Julio, as you do with our quotes, what were the critics saying? Uh, what were the critics saying? So we're gonna do uh, the positive quotes uh, since it's a fresh movie, and then if you stick around for real talk, you'll get to hear. The, the very few rotten quotes. But here we start with Tom Long from Detroit News, who says, Definitions of family, love, and friendship all get put to the test with wit and warmth in The Kids Are All Right, one of the year's most honest and endearing films. He forgot another W word with wit and warmth, white. <laughs> it's implied. <laughs> this was 1993. <laughs> Uh, Steve Erickson from Nashville Scene says Lisa Cholodenko's The Kids Are Alright suggests what mainstream cinema could be in a kinder world. What? what do you I don't know? know what that noise was I made, but that that, <laughs> that literally makes no sense to it, me. It's a kinder world. That's where, a Brandon Curtis line right there. <laughs> it's a kinder world where gay women have sex with... Uh, with the Hulk? with males, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's it's is that that fantasy world first witness and chasing Amy, which we also tackled about ten episodes. We ago. did, and man, you want to talk about the positive end and the negative end? <laughs> this is like both ends of the spectrum cover. We should have done these back to back. Didn't think so. When we re-edit the Contrarians run, we'll we'll reshuffle the episodes. When we so go it through for sense. the Criterion release, yeah, the Contrarians, the gay episodes. <laughs> uh, Chase Well from ChaseWell.com says, "I want to high five the person who cast Benning and Moore as a couple. Their scenes are the most delicious parts of the film." Was that a dude? Uh, Chase Whale. I mean, it could go either way. Doctor Chase Meridian. Delicious. Used to describe them. Yeah. Uh, he also misspelled Annette Benning's last name because it's only one N. And then, uh, even worse, he misspelled their their scenes. He wrote as they are scenes. So I think he was he was high. Uh, <laughs> Typing with one hand while he was watching this movie. What the hell? I just realized I got two quotes from the same guy 
back to back because also oh, Chase awesome. Will from Gordon and the Whale. <laughs> <laughs> He had a mini empire in, in the early 90s. I wonder what Chase Will is up to now. Watching the kids are all right, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, Chase Will, again, uh, this time in Gordon and the Whale, says, We're shown real-life problems in a fictional story that gives us real-life solutions. Bravo, Lisa. Your film is more than all right. It's, it's Juno. <laughs> it's lesbian Juno. Jason Best from Movie Talk says, The kids are all right is witty, touching, and humane. And decidedly up to the minute. Up to the 1993 minute, do you think? 1993? I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I've been saying 93 like... Uh, fuck, what was this? 2010. 2010. Where'd you get 93? Yeah, why did I get 93? I don't know. Man, let's scrap this. Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> I'll just edit every time I say 93. <laughs> 2010. <laughs> um, all right. Sean Burns from Philadelphia Weekly. It's a happy, horny movie that loves its characters and their messy human imperfections. You will, too. This movie does not love Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> I mean, he, he got to have a lot of sex in this movie. Out of everybody, if you measure the love a movie has for a character by the amount of sex scenes that they give him or her, then this movie loves Mark Ruffalo more than anybody else. This movie is like a Rob Zombie on its side of hating men. Uh, Jeff Bayer, the scorecard review, says, I love that this is a film about a family where being gay isn't a controversy. Yeah, and that's, I do, that's one of the things I do appreciate about the movie is this, you don't get bludgeoned. It was like, you or know what? There's not any scene, like, it paints, to me, a better version of, like, what society should be where it's not a deal, because it shouldn't be a deal. It was, uh, the writers, they were like, it's 2010. We're past this in America. Let's explore other issues. There's no way anything can go wrong in six years. Uh, and finally, Matt Gladsby from Flicks.co.nz says, How, despite such a talented, femme-centric cast, does Ruffalo's lovable idiot manage to walk off with the film? He is a doofus. A lovable doofus. Uh, all right. All right. So. Like the kids. All right. And it's all right. Right. Not the kids are all right. Because that's a, that's a, a Who song. A Who documentary, too. Okay. And uh, that was originally, no. I really hope that we made it very clear which the kids are all right we're doing in this episode. We didn't have a whole bunch of contrarian listeners just watching a documentary about the Who wondering, how are they going to be negative about this? The best part is if we did like a swerve where we just record the whole thing, but then in the end be like, we weren't talking about the Who movie. <laughs> What's the, isn't there an Offspring song also called The Kids Are All Right? Maybe, yeah. Offspring fucks hard, man. Love that band. Uh, so, anyway, let's get to this. 93%, yada, yada, yada. Oh, that's where I got the 93. Oh, that's where you're coming from? 1993? <laughs> 1993. 90 it broke the Rotten Tomatoes. It went so high. It went to 1,993%. And back in time. Yes. Uh, okay, yeah. Kids are all right. It, it Lesbians fight. Mark Ruffalo shows up, ruins everything. Then he leaves, and everything's fine. Let's go to real that's, talk. That's it. <laughs> Uh, there is more to it than this, Alex. Come on. Not much. Uh, Nick and Jules are two lead characters, played by Annette Benning and Julianne Moore, respectively, are just parents, run-of-the-mill married couple. Annette Benning's the classic, the classically... Um, what do you call them? Type A's? Like the people that are just, you know, a little uptight, very intellectual. She's uptight, or... yeah. I mean, it's... Um, 
the boring it, adult one. It's a very, very formulaic couple for a movie. And that, yeah, she's the by the books, very classically trained one. And then Julianne Moore with her fiery red hair and her thick frame glasses. And, you know, she uh, is a rebel. She's the housewife, but wants to buck the system. And she's trying start to figure out what business. to do with her life. Yeah, exactly. She is. Uh, she's Chandler and Ed Benning is Monica. It, pretty much. And they couldn't have kids. So, yeah. It paints a picture quickly of them being just like any other married couple, like they have troubles, you know, with their sex life. It's thwarted because they have the children in the home with them. But what children? I mean, they have the very children that are children. all right. Yes, <laughs> they're just all right. They're they're future superstars. Yes, their children. Uh, Joni, played by Mia, is it Wachowska? Is I think right? it's Wachowska. Wachowska. Uh, Alice. Yeah, uh, Lawless. Um, and then <laughs> Laser. <laughs> Because we weren't establishing them as progressive enough. Their son is named Laser. I'm assuming they live in Austin, and he goes to one of the frou-frou schools where you get to name yourself when you're five. We just offended the one listener we have named Laser. <laughs> Some guy in Guam. This is bullshit. Fuck you, man. <laughs> I thought you were cool. Uh, Josh Hutcherson? Hutcherson, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, From Hunger Games. Yeah, Hunger Games Whatever fame. his name is. He's useless in Hunger Games. He's pretty much useless in this Isn't movie. Isn't it like TP? <laughs> what? <laughs> Is his name like Pepe or TP or something? Pita. 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 Okay. Pita. Pita. Like the like the bread. Okay. Yeah. So. And he is a. And I think in the Hunger Games he's like a, a baker. So wow, <laughs> that movie's more clever than I give it credit for. So he's fifteen. She's eighteen. She's getting ready to go to college. She was the all star student. She's like the minion at Benning. Yes. And then. Because <laughs> they don't beat you over the head with that enough. Yes, she's Annette Benning and he's Julianne Moore. And he has a friend named Clay that they're weary about his relationship with. The fucking opening credits, they're snorting scripts, man. And that That's pretty wild for a 15-year-old. And then they go skateboarding. Then it was like Did they go really, retro? really shitty weed and a 40 of Bud Ice is usually all you could score in, in my yeah, day. But, you know, Alex, this is... This is a progressive movie. Yeah, but also I, I think the movie, you, you nailed it. It, it's, it's it's all really, right it's all right but it's also telling you i understand listen i'll i'll give it this it's hard it's in the right place but in its overzealousness to tell you that hey lesbian couples are just like any other couple it kind of goes a little overboard in selling that and so it almost comes across as like man lesbian couples just can't just they don't have their shit together <laughs> you know it's like you watch this kid snorting shit, and and you know he's he's friends with a guy that's a complete douchebag, and mm -hmm. he can't see it. And the first thing you think of is like, well, of course, right? He doesn't have a male figure of authority to look up to, so he looks up to this asshole, mm -hmm. right? I don't think that's the intent of the movie, no. But that's what happens because you know there's not a single loving moment between Annette Bening and Julianne Moore in this movie even when they try a little bit it falls apart mm -hmm. so i i think that they they went a little over the line in trying to make them relatable you know and trying to destroy the mysticism of the lesbian couple <laughs> <laughs> they just made him like even more incompetent than the rest of us at parenting yeah the laser kid uh, has some issues socially he's 15 though i mean i think that's was one of the more unexplored parts of the movie is how they adapt to raising a 15 year old boy. Cause that's like from like 11 to 15 is literally the worst part of any man boy's life ever. So as far as if, if hormonally, they, if they come out of it, yes, exactly. They, <laughs> the, if they the, make the, it through the best case scenario. 
Uh, that's why I say it's Juno. Yeah, there's these real issues at the heart of it, but it's clo- cloaked in this unrealistic, way too pixie manic dream girl, whatever the fucking phrase is. Pixie manic dream actress being for an Oscar. <laughs> Four Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Well, Juno had Best Picture also, and Best Actress. Could it be, Alex? <laughs> that the Academy is right and you're wrong. <laughs> Not according to the moniker of this podcast, <laughs> or the catchphrase, rather. Moving along. Laser and Joni, obviously there's not a man in the picture, but there had to be at one point in time. We come to find out that both Nick and Jules use the same sperm donor. They both were impregnated at one point in time. I believe that's the trail. Uh, we, we were trying to figure out the family tree about halfway through it. Yeah. Uh, Laser specifically, Joni doesn't really seem to have an overwhelming interest in it, but Laser wants to meet the sperm donor. Because he's, cause he's the boy. He's an idiot. Yes. Well, he's young and curious. I think she probably had that hinkling at one point in time but and to your point also the picture they paint early he may just want the, to have some sort of authoritative male presence in his life so he has to have Joni do it because she's 18 he's 15 they call the sperm uh, bank and say hey you know what the fuck who did this to to us who's our dad <laughs> who who did this to us who brought us into what, what man did this and so they go meet their dad our Kramer haired Jesus uh, enter Mark Ruffalo Man, Bruce Banner steps on screen. I think as I was watching this movie and and he stepped in, you know, because we'd been, we'd spend a solid ten minutes already with just with movie characters, yes. right? And uh, and then Ruffalo walks in, and you can almost smell him. He's so relatable. <laughs> he if if there's such a thing as a stereotypical average guy, that is Mark Ruffalo. Mm-hmm. And they even here where he is supposed to be like this kind of cool guy, he's not cool in a way that's unattainable, right? I mean, no. Mark Ruffalo looks like me in a way, you know what I mean? Like not not exactly like me, but he's not in great shape in this movie. But he, he's like fucking hairy and unkempt and whatever. It's like if I had you know Mark he's Ruffalo got the bad money boy thing going, but, but he's got the Kramer hair and he's got the good five o'clock shadow. It's, it's like I can do that if I had the money and the resources and like. The willpower, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's not like, you know, you see, like, action stars, whatever, like, they're really high. Like, I'm never going to be, like, Fassbender. The Rock? Know? Or The Rock. <laughs> well, okay, that's even. Fassbender will never be The Rock. <laughs> yeah. But but Ruffalo, he's like an everyman. You oh, know? Yeah. You can, like, you can at least fool yourself into thinking that you could get there. And it, the, the movie sends that really weird mixed message of, well, he never got married or had kids, and his life's pretty awesome. He has this cool house. He has a good job. He has plenty of money. He rides a motorcycle. He has, like, has awesome sex with sex. hot women. Yeah. yeah. He has a kind of cool sex where you just get like, you don't even get to watch the entire thing because it would be too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the kind of awesome sex that can only be consumed by an audience in like tiny montages. You just need like a 15 second little, because, you know, yeah. Especially that scene where we're right in the peanut gallery. <laughs> Him and Julianne Moore, you're looking right down Main Street, baby. <laughs> That's where you you got you got to the box office early. You got to pick the best seats. <laughs> uh, but he meets them, says, "Hey, this is who I am. This is what I do." Just because, yeah. There's really no rhyme or reason. Why would you do that to yourself? He and you know, every time Ruffalo speaks on the phone in this, it's usually something pivotal's happening when he's talking on the phone. But he's always like doing something. It's like fucking Jim Sturgis in that. Uh, <laughs> Geostorm movie. He's like always running in from something and somewhat out of breath. And this one, Mark Ruffalo is always on the phone, and his hands are usually always dirty. And he's he, like flossing, and he's trying to make the you know these crucial life changing decisions. And yeah, whatever. I'll meet them. Yeah, it's fine. 
uh, meets him. The first impression is kind of rough. They kind of bounce around, talk about sports, school, shit like that. But uh, Joni seems to really like him, thinks he's really cool. Uh, but Laser is not quite sold on him yet. I think he was just kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing. As that's the movie trying to be clever and upend our expectations. Because obviously the boy was the most excited to watch him, to meet him. And then, of course, he's the one that's less impressed. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was just that uh, Ruffalo's like, animal magnetism turned him off? <laughs> I don't know. It could just be the... I mean, a 15-year-old, you would feel threatened. So oh. it's like you're meeting the leader of the pack and you're like, is he about to... To kill me. Well, he, you know, for all intents and purposes, Laser's the alpha at his house, and then Ruffalo <laughs> shows up, and he's like, "Oh fuck!" And, and, and he, he, he was right to to distrust him because <laughs> Ruffalo wrecks havoc. He let the true alpha in. Moms, as they refer to them throughout the movie, Laser and Joni refer to them in couple as moms. Uh, one, they are heavily against motorcycles, and that's straw. You know, the first straw that's plucked. Paul drives this motorcycle. Cool guy, Paul. Uh, they think Laser's gay because he's spending so much time with his friend Clay. Did not mean for that to rhyme. I don't know why they would just assume that right off the bat. I I don't understand because this whole sequence is just basically it's based on. He's given them no reason to think uh, what we've seen in the movie. He's given them no reason to think that they're like romantically involved. But even if he was giving them reason, the way that they handle this is just. I mean, you two are gay. You should know better. <laughs> Instead, they make it really awkward. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was really gay, they're not really giving him a reason to to come out to them. Instead, they're just making it weird. Uh, of course, he makes it weird too because he he's rummaging through their room. Yeah, and- he tells uh, Clay that his mom smoked pot, so they're looking for it, and that he comes across their uh, sex toys in a porno movie that they both start watching, and it's a gay male porno that apparently Annette Benning and Julianne Moore watch when they're feeling in the mood. So is this like, you think, is this a bit of like research? Like when we're doing Donnie Brasco and we're like, oh, you know, that guy, he learned about Fugazi and he had to put that in the movie. <laughs> and here, do you think that when the, the writers were doing the research, they came across the fact that that gay women preferred to get off to uh, to gay, gay male porn because that's not faked? I, I, it could be it could be one of those things because that's something that i have no knowledge of so it's maybe like a writer came across that and was like my god we've struck gold here we have to put it in the movie let's reveal this to the world <laughs> uh it's easily the most memorable part of the movie for me <laughs> jesus well because that, that has like real life application now you know like something that's actually true in the real world yeah if again, it's true it, yeah, well that's in a slight <laughs> bit of real talk uh there's only one it's way. It's not to our know. area to really know much of. <laughs> I was say one way to know, gay female listeners. Let us know. <laughs> well, through that scene, it it's revealed basically all that clumsiness and awkwardness just to be revealed that Laser and Joni met up with their biological father, and so the moms aren't really cool with it. They're kind of freaking out. This scene it turns it, it reminded me a lot of um, what's that movie we really don't like? Julianne Moore is also in it. Steve Carell, Crazy Stupid Love. Oh 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 yeah. In like it. It's trying to paint this really serious scene, but then they're like tripping over each other's words and misunderstanding. And it's like, okay, this is just Benny Hill shit at this point. So they discover that they met Paul. Let's see. So they want to have Paul over for lunch, and he's awesome. And they're just, they're not sure what to make of it. Annette Benning doesn't like him. Uh, they tell the story about how they both first met, Annette Benning and Julianne Moore. 
clear violation of the the doctor patient uh what do you call the hippocratic that hippocratic oath yeah the the full relationship professional relationship yeah and taking it, full advantage of the doctor patient relationship and ed benning her tongue was numb yeah yeah and they're just no 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 julianne moore's tongue was numb they're just telling these tales of cunnilingus loudly in front of their children it's really weird because, implied cunnilingus yeah i mean they get they get drunk eventually or at least annette benning does dude annette benning is a raging alcoholic in this film but uh She's but fucking first... Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, b- before she goes full Cage, though. And uh, fucking Mark Ruffalo is Elizabeth Shue, here to save the day. <laughs> I don't know that it works that way. <laughs> Did I misunderstand the meaning of leaving Las Vegas? Was it not about how cool it is to drink and make new friends? Because that's kind of an admitting sark here. <laughs> before, before she gets wasted, though, and it starts just being way too... Uh, uh, just sharing too much information with everybody. Uh, she's she's grilling Ruffalo pretty hard, mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird because I wrote in my notes. I wrote that uh, this is the most awkward job interview for a job that you already had. <laughs> is he, he's already their their donor, mm-hmm. right? He already did like they can't like fire him. Yeah, for that. <laughs> he already has that connection to the kids. So like the worst that can happen and as, is that they can forbid the kids to see him. But as as uh, Alice in Wonderland keeps reminding them she's 18 now, so yeah. she's her own person. She can do whatever she wants. Yeah, her throwing that around is like the Vietnam movie where the person keeps saying, "You know, I got, I just got my girl and my kid back home. I can't wait to get back to him. It's I like, will not die." Yeah, exactly. Hmm. I wonder if that's going to play off at any point during this dinner or lunch. Looks like a late lunch, early dinner. Jules explains that she wants to get in the landscaping business, and Mark Ruffalo, Paul, cool guy Paul, says, you know, I've got this backyard that I need help with. Can you help out? And Julianne Moore, I think, originally thinks he's just, you know, uh, humor humoring her or taking pity upon her, so she says no. And then, I mean, Mark Ruffalo knows what he's doing from the start here, planting these seeds. He's like, well, if you're not up to it, then, you know, I can find someone else. Okay, so I was I was going to ask you, and this is, I guess, it's a little bit of real talk in Contrarian's Corner. Do you think that he is he's aiming to score from the very beginning there or is he that's is he what, trying to be a good guy that's certainly what the movie would lead you to believe because this movie leads you to believe that men are inherently bad <laughs> and that all they want is sex which is like that's that predates like jeff foxworthy comedy that you know all men are good for is sex or that's all they want he's like well if you don't think you're up to it and he grabs his dick <laughs> yeah. uh, very odd propositioning and annette benning I think that's another thing I've caught on this go around. She like, I guess she sees it from the start because she's trying to divert any trains of thought that could lead that she way. She keeps going like looking back and forth between uh, Julianne Moore and Ruffalo. She's like, uh, like Gary Sinise at the end of uh, Reindeer Games, looking <laughs> back and forth between Charlie Stair and Ben Affleck. It's like, what's going on here? <laughs> I don't know, but I don't like it. Uh, much better movie. Jules agrees to do Paul's Backyard. That's not a euphemism yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> Paul begins spending more time with his biological children, Laser and Joni, just getting accustomed to them, getting to know them, being a part of their life. Jules begins work on uh, Paul's backyard. They There's just palpable tension from the word go. And they have the most fucked up exchange in the whole movie is when Julianne Moore says, you remind me of my kids. And that's when she gets attracted to him. Right. If you know what's happening, and we've both seen this movie already, that line is just... To call it weird is is being generous, and this this is where it starts. Of especially having seen it before, when you really do realize that that the Paul character should have been played by Jim Caviezel, because for all intents and purposes, this is 
this is Mark Ruffalo playing the Jesus Christ of white male actors it, <laughs> being crucified for the sins. And, you know, it's necessary at the end of the day. It's hundreds <laughs> of years of white men getting away with whatever they want on film in this movie. No, we're, we're nailing you to the fucking wall. You will bear this cross that you have brought... And Ruffalo knew it. He signed up for it. I mean, he got paid for it. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure half the budget was just Ruffalo. Because he's like, if I'm going to do this. And I was going to say, be- and he got to kiss Julianne Moore, who's a beautiful woman. But at the same time, she won in that bet, too. Because Mark Ruffalo, my God. Especially he's, in this. He, he His looks literally on. cannot be tamed in this movie. <laughs> uh, they're talking about vegetation. And he, again, this, is a, this movie's like Cloverfield. It works really well one time, but when you've seen it, you're going back through. You're like, all right, let's get to it. We know you're going to hook up. <laughs> you're going to hook up hard. So let's, let's skip all the foreplay. Uh, the first day they're there, there's just a really awkward kiss. Like they, it, it's uh, a college party kiss is what I call it. Cause they start like opposite sides of the room, but they just slowly start inching towards one another acting like nothing's going to happen. They do the thing uh, where they're fighting over the pie, right? He made some apple pie or strawberry pie. And so she's trying to, he's trying to give it to her so that the kids can have some and she's trying to give it back. And so there's this back and forth push and pull and then, Oh, we're kissing. Yeah. You want to know the difference between a male fem- filmmaker and a female filmmaker? Uh, the Mark Ruffalo character in this is pretty much uh, John Favreau in Chef, and look at the difference in tone of that movie <laughs> and this movie. Uh, well, I mean, John Favreau, love him and everything, but it's like different strengths there. Yeah, Ruffalo is playing. With I the would Ruffalo believe like- that Mark Ruffalo had a situation where he was stuck with either Sofia Vergara or uh, Scarlett Johansson. John Favreau, not so much. He was a great chef. He was. He made those Cubanos really well. Yeah. Uh, this not stuck in a situation. That's very. I can. I gotta be careful how I word things. Uh, in a romantic involvement with Sofia Vergara or Scarlett. Well, no, you're stuck in the situation of having to decide. Like, you if know. that's your problem, I would definitely <laughs> want to have that problem. There is. There, there are a lot of movies, and you know, this is going back to what Ruffalo is paying, how he's paying for all our sins here. <laughs> there are a lot of movies where the plot is this: this white guy has to decide between two gorgeous women. <laughs> so. And Ruffalo's here, man, just dragging the cross, just. <laughs> I'm uh, doing this for all of you. He does get the, my favorite moment in the movie, I think, and I, I called it out while we were watching it, which is they kiss, they break off the kiss. She's like, oh, my God, I can't believe we did this. And she runs off. And then Ruffalo has this shit-eating grin, which is so true. It's like it's the look. It's the grin of a white guy, white straight guy that just got away with kissing a lesbian. Yeah. So he's, you know he's going to brag about it. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. He has that, oh, man face. Like, oh, <laughs> Uh, gee whiz it's good it's good to be a straight white man that's the face he has and eventually this does lead uh, the next day she shows up and uh is apologizing for what happened and it just leads to them full-on coitus and man it's uh coitus doesn't do it justice i wouldn't say brutal but it's it's intense yeah very passionate lovemaking yeah which it's it's kind of once again i understand that the the whole thesis behind this movie is that lesbian couples are just like us. So of course mm-hmm. they, they even, they have shitty, a shitty sex life, you know, just because they're lesbians doesn't mean that they're always on. Right. And so before this happens, there's like this interlude where Annette Manning is trying to make up to Juliet Moore for being such a shit, right. For being so like just nasty. Inattentive. So she, uh, so she makes her a, a bath. <laughs> yeah, and for me, 
from raging alcoholic. And then she finds her in the kitchen with a huge glass of wine. <laughs> she drops a bowl majorly, right? It's like she, she she was almost there. Julie Moore had almost already forgotten uh, everything bad that she had done. And then she takes a phone call in the kitchen, and then Julian Moore is just, like, left to prune in the bath. Yeah. Uh, so then, of course, contrast that with the vigorous sex that she has with, uh, with Ruffalo. Yeah, uh, I mean – in situations like that, you know, grass is always greener type of thing. But when you got the Hulk just on top of you, pumping in a sweating, I mean, right? But talk about overcompensating. I mean, you know, it's like I, I get, I already got your point, movie. You don't need to go the extra mile and just showing Mark Ruffalo as this, like, you know, god of sex, <laughs> this sexual tyrannosaur. Right. I mean, how much more with interesting? With an appetite that would make Mike Douglas seem gay. <laughs> It wouldn't have been more interesting if the sex was also pretty lame with Ruffalo, but she was still getting more out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like they're missionary and Ruffalo is just like on top, kind of like thrusting. And I, she, I want to hear you breathing. <laughs> and and yeah, Julianne Moore is like really into it. Mm-hmm. Like, why? <laughs> that would have made the movie a lot more interesting. But instead, they kind of stack the deck, right? Yeah. It's like, of course, Ruffalo's going to be great at sex because that way he is... He's definitely he like literally, he like literally manhandles her, like picks her up and throws like throws her into bed and whatnot. Uh, but that's what it was building to. That was the climax, no pun intended. They continue on this relationship while things seem to get more and more distance between Jules and uh, Nick. She Jules tries to cut it off at one point, but that leads to like one of I'm almost positive it was in the trailer, but it's like the go to fucking uh, buddy fuck comedy. Um, we should stop this. Yeah. I agree. I'm pretty sure that, w- and then it cuts to them in bed with the sheet pulled up to their neck or one of them smoking a cigarette. I'm pretty sure that was in the trailer for Just Friends and Friends with Benefits. Um, and it's, it's the poster of It's Complicated. It's it is. Street and Alec Baldwin. What's the, what's the movie with uh, Justin Timberlake and Jackie? Uh, what's her name? She's fucking beautiful. That's somebody's new show. So wait, Just Friends is Kelso and Natalie Portman, right? That's Friends with Benefits. Is Just Friends the one with Timberlake? And then Just Friends is Timberlake and Mila Kunis? Mila Kunis. Fuck, man. That movie was on the other day, and I was having to explain the premise to my dad. It's like, okay, so Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis can't find people to have sex with, so they have to have sex with one another, because Hollywood is completely logical. Here nor there. Well, somewhere in there, because we're talking about just... Uh... Basically, I'm saying this movie's no better than those. <laughs> For this particular troupe. I mean, you're trying to be, like, edgy and, like, give us, like, new ideas and new, like, configurations for families and whatever. But then you fall on, like, a really tired Man, the more joke. we're talking about this, the more I'm thinking about it, this is, I think, comparable in some respects to Crazy Stupid Love in that, yeah, it builds up. You're trying to buck the system with this different type of movie, and then you fall back on these cliches and whatnot. Uh, Paul admits that he's falling for Jules. She, and she's like, she's, are you fucking 18? Yeah, she's, she's fucking... Very Han Solo in this scene. I, I really dug this, actually. <laughs> she, he's like, I love you. And she, I know. <laughs> Where are my cigarettes? <laughs> my note just here says, Nick be drinking. Um, uh, is this when they go out to dinner and she's just pounding him back? Yeah, I think that b- right before this is uh, the the big MAGA moment of the, of the movie where uh, some poor, like, Hispanic gardener, he's just like a, a, a casualty of war here. Oh, because, yeah. He happens to be the guy that's working, doing the actual work, while Julianne Moore is, is having sex with Mark Ruffalo. And I don't know, the movie doesn't make it clear if he's figured out what's happening. Or, or if, if he's just, just a happy guy. He's just a happy guy, but Julianne Moore reads his smile as judgmental of what she's doing. 
So she fires him. Yeah, she projects her uh, anxiety and paranoia onto him. And it just uses her white power <laughs> to just, like, get him out of there. Poor dude. We don't see him again. We don't see him again. There's no, like, there's no... Uh, uh, get the men out of here. Yeah. yeah. Well, That's we... the tale of the movie. The man's gone. We don't see him again. That's true. But also, yeah, because they, when, they having the, when they're having the... the It's complicated, just friends, uh, friends with benefits... <laughs> scene uh i think it starts with her saying i shouldn't have fired him that was not right mm-hmm. but she doesn't rehire him <laughs> so. uh so they go to uh nick and jules go to dinner with a group of friends or just a, a married couple excuse me and that we've never seen before nope and don't really understand what they're talking about and never nick, see him again either it's a man so once it's gone it's got to get it's got to stay gone uh nick is just drinking incessantly to the point of concern of uh when offered green tea she's like fuck you yeah (laughs) jules has to literally intervene to try to stop it and they get into a discussion about uh are you even attracted to me anymore we're so distanced uh nick realizes she needs to be more open with paul she's expressed her dislike in the amount of time everyone's spending with him so she uh and also goes uh off the rails when she sees uh joni riding on the back of his motorcycle so she says let's have dinner at paul's place i'm gonna try to be better uh, makes what appears to be a very uh, well-intended opening and a well-intended uh, plea for compromise or peace, rather. She, This is Annette Benning finally. It's pretty late in the movie, but she finally does shows, something besides drink. And, and just be angry, right? Yeah. She, like, turns on the charm, and you're finally like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be a, a fun human being to be around. You're not just watching National Geographic and pounding three bottles of wine every night it, yeah like she talks about uh, music she liked in college with paul and they start singing it, it, it's like dude no please no more singing scenes in movies that are not musicals <laughs> it's just an embarrassment to everybody involved it's just she sang the acapella version in new york new york and then it cut to <laughs> mark ruffalo with a single tear rolling down his eye uh she begins opening up she is having fun you can tell just by reading her face, Jules is becoming extremely paranoid because they're at the scene of the crime. Nick gets up to use the bathroom. She finds Jules's hair and Paul's uh, hairbrush, and then she puts on her glasses, gets out her pipe and magnifying glass, and becomes she finds a trail Sherlock of red Holmes. Hair. Yeah, it's literally like that. She finds a trail. There's it's in his drain, his sink drain. She finds hair in his bed. She finds her scrunchie. I mean, it's never really addressed, but I think we should be concerned the volume of which Julianne Moore is losing her hair at. You know, she she was he was pulling her hair at some point in one of the sex scenes. Uh, she was asking him to pull her hair. Oh. So that dude's got Hulk strength, doesn't she know? And I think that was the first Hulk joke. I had plenty more. I've been working on it all day. So they pack up. They go home. She has it in her head what's going on. So she confronts Jules. Uh, it's not Jules. <laughs> Bless her. She doesn't really do too much to try to argue or debunk her crazy theory. She just kind of breaks down, and they have a big, this is 40-esque fight. A of... big emotional mm-hmm. uh, meltdown. Mm-hmm. The movie, even like at this climatic moment, it just kind of decides to betray their uh, its protagonist. Mm-hmm. And be just like, no, let's just let them be girls and have a good cry. Mm-hmm. And, and then on top of that, you know, do it with an earshot of the kids. Well, the kids are fucking snooping. They open the door and the kids are just standing there. And uh, Mia Wachowska takes off running with fucking uh, laser. Joss Hutcherson is like a fucking cockroach. He just stands still and like, <laughs> or not a cockroach, but a, 
A mouse. He just gets frozen and <laughs> stares up. Doesn't even say anything. So Paul finds out because he calls Joni, and Joni just kind of reads him the rights and tells him, you know, fuck off, don't call me again, you're a loser, you fucked everything up. So in the infinite idiocy of the Paul character, he calls Jules and says, you know, all right, cool, it's out in the open, we can just go for it now. And again, Julia, she like hangs up on him, right? Right, she doesn't even like, she just rolls her eyes and then hangs up the phone. And then she goes, men... I don't Roll think, the credits. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think the movie realized how uh, unsympathetic she's coming across as. You know what I mean? Like the movie is obviously its cards are are dealt by now, and they're all exposed. And it's clear that Ruffalo is the villain of the piece mm-hmm. here, right? But but it's hard not to feel bad for him because he's just so earnest about the whole thing. Yeah, a- a- about this relationship. It's like. We already Ray mentioned Chasing Amy earlier. It's like he watched Chasing Amy, and it was like, if it can work for Affleck, it can work for me. Well, it also, what the tries to do here, it tries to manipulate the story and saying he did this in a ving- for vindictive reasons, or he was like trying to fuck shit up, whereas the movie so far has painted you just to think he's just this doofus that... Right, because it's not that that she he just wanted to fuck her and then move on. Instead, it's no he 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 had feelings and those feelings grew and now he's really into it. Yeah, right? he like he's the one that likes her. She's the one that played with with his heart. Basically, she was all like pull my hair, t- taking the responsibility off of her and placing it. Just again, another nail in the cross. <laughs> and again, this is all earned for white male actors everywhere, white men in general. <laughs> we movies like this have to exist. So Joni ends up going out and getting drunk at a party that night. She's all upset. And this is like the only scene in the movie where she really rebels in any nature. Yeah, she rode on a motorcycle. But she comes back drunk um, from this party and gives um, both Nick and Jules the what for. Calls Nick a drunk. Says Jules, can't you know, you fucked up the family. You can't tell me what to do type of thing. And then I think she says, I'm 18 and I'm an adult and I can do what I want. If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> like, really? We, we'd miss that bit of information. <laughs> I mean, the movie just opened with a celebration of your 18th birthday, I think. <laughs> so then we quickly wrap up the summer. And it's the last family dinner before Joni leaves for school. Does it say where, Do they say at any point in time where she's going? Uh, no. Does it say where they live? Is it California, I assume? It sounds like a California kind of family with mm-hmm. the California kind of problems. The sty- Yeah, style and uh, this, the scenery. This, this dinner seems very uh okay you know it's like we're coming off a succession of emotional scenes where nothing was resolved and yet here they are around the dinner table kind of like joking around a little bit mm-hmm. they seem okay they're they're talking you know and once again you're like what is this i know they're supposed to be relatable but this doesn't sound doesn't come across as what real people uh do right yeah you, you don't when you have a big fight and a daughter tells their her parents that they're horrible people they suck one's a drunk the other one's a cheater you're not just having dinner the next day like nothing happened yeah I, I, well we don't know it's the next day it could be three months later we, there, time is not linear in this movie like it, I mean that is true but but it is within I mean it can't be too far gone because no. Ruffalo it's still he he looks like he looked like in the previous scene incredible. <laughs> A broken man. <laughs> a broken man. That has, I, I guess it could take you a long time to get over Julianne Moore. It's fair. She's quite a gal. So Paul shows up. He knows that Joni's getting ready to leave. Uh, he shows up. 
and she's like, "Can we at least be Facebook friends?" <laughs> and she, Joni, goes to answer the door, and he's got the poster boards with the different words, and he starts playing the Christmas Carol, and you know, saying, "Don't tip off your moms that I'm here," and. <laughs> He asks, you know, if we can just still see each other. You know, I'm sorry about what I did. I'm shamed. Blah 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 blah. And she says, I don't know. I just wish you could have been better. Which, you know, it's it's basically Mia Wachowska. <laughs> the kids are all right. Uh, oh man, because this is our last scene, which means we skipped over uh, uh, his Al Pacino moment. Earlier. Oh yeah, where he gets off the phone with. It's one of these things, if you watch the movie, you'll know how just incredible it is comedically. Of He gets off the phone with Joni after knowing everything, and then you know some girl that... That works for him. Yeah, is his. like, hey, check out these kooks. And he's... No. <laughs> he doesn't have time for it. Yeah. And for those that, if it's your first time listening, when we say the Pacino moment we're referencing in Righteous Kill, where uh, Robert De Niro goes to call the cops because Al Pacino shot, and Al Pacino stops him and just says, don't. <laughs> Amongst the greater moments of that man's career, yeah, Alfonso Pacino for Righteous Kill. Uh, so Paul shows up. Joni says, fuck off. Uh, Nick comes out and goes full Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven on him, just saying, no, if you come near my family again, I'm going to burn down your barn and kill your wife. This is really the movie abandoning any sort of pretense of subtext, and this is just really women everywhere telling men everywhere how they feel. Mm-hmm. I wish you were better. <laughs> Come fuck with me again, and I'll end you. Yes. That was the world 2010. Yep. And again, there she's treating Nick is pro- projecting onto uh, Paul that his whole intention from the get-go is to ruin their family. Yeah. And, and Ruffalo is just, I mean. And Julianne Moore is just like watching from behind the curtain <laughs> like, oh, shit, I caused all that. <laughs> I guess I'm off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Poor Ruffalo, they slam the door in his face, and then there's, like, the curtain. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face, dude. It's just so ridiculous. The curtain is still kind of, you know, you, he can see through, yeah. like, a, a little bit of the window, and he he sees laser. And, and he, he, gives him, he gives him the chicks, man. The, the, that's the face <laughs> he gives him. And then Laser gets up, and this just stuck with me. It was clearly a prop plate because he, like, turns his plate vertically and all the food stays perfectly in place. Uh, but, yeah, he he hates him. So even, even, like, the one bro hug moment we could have in the movie is taken away. Why Why must we be so divisive in our movies? Why not just embrace the fact that we're all fucked up? <laughs> you know, everybody makes mistakes. I mean, literally, the next scene in the movie is – Julianne Moore literally just getting off the hook by giving like she a, does good, the, a good Oscar speech. She does the Forrest Gump speech. You know, I may not be a smart woman, but <laughs> I know what love is. It's pretty much what she says. She says marriage is hard. You make mistakes. You fuck up along the way. But I love your mother and I love you kids. And it's like, man, what? Why couldn't Mark Ruffalo have the same sympathy? <laughs> right. He was trying. He was. I mean, if you had let him speak, <laughs> just drowning him out. But again, for all the shit white men have done. We deserve to watch Mark Ruffalo take that verbal ass whipping. His his last bit in the movie is just kind of perplexing, right? He oh, just, he goes out and he like he's mad and he throws his helmet at his motorcycle, right? And is this is this the movie's attempt at showing us uh, the true face of Ruffalo, right? <laughs> Underneath all the cool, he was just like he was just ready to throw a tantrum, right? He throws his helmet at the motorcycle. It's like God damn it! And then the dogs start barking. That's right. And then he's, Mickey! 
<laughs> a very undignified exit from the movie. <laughs> That's putting it very lightly. The only thing that could have gone better is if like he gets on the bike and he's out of gas and both his tires are flat. <laughs> and then it's raining and the truck drives by and splashes him. <laughs> so they go and drop Joni off at college, roll the credits. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it, it's it, it's over 90 minutes, so it qualifies as a feature-length film. This last scene's really weird, though. The, they drop her off. They're helping her unpack. She's like... Leave me alone for a minute. And then there's just this really weird, drawn-out thing of her like looking for him. And they're like, oh, we had to move the car, so we're over here now. I mean, at Which, this point, you already got rid of Ruffalo. There's no point in stretching the tension, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like we think that they really abandoned her in college. No. <laughs> For every any flaw that's that they the might have had, that's the alternate scene. Uh, Julianne Moore turns to Ned Benning. He's like, you know, she's all right. Let's get out of here. Yeah, fuck her. <laughs> get in the car, and, and they leave Laser in the college as well. Uh, that was the last bit of the movie, actually. Uh, Laser making a joke about how old they are. Because the last part of the movie has to be a a, a man saying something really stupid and insensitive. <laughs> yeah, and they look at each other like. Boys will be boys. <laughs> Dudes, man. Uh, yeah, but Jody, Joni, uh, to her credit, being possibly the only really pure character in the movie, gets her ending where she stays at college and then Laser and his two moms drive off into the literal sunset as some Natalie Imbruglia song takes us away. I wish it'd been Natalie Imbruglia, because then, you know, it would have been on a higher note. Or if it was The Kids Are All Right by The Who. <laughs> that God, the insert that gif of Kevin from The Office. What a waste. <laughs> yeah, all that, 93%. It's, it's, it's a product of its time, our time as well, mm-hmm. American time in general. It's, it's just what happens when uh, pop culture and social revolution kind of like intersect you know somebody's got to pay and god damn it it's going to be mark ruffalo <laughs> mark ruffalo took the 40 lashes <laughs> across these 90 minutes of movie bless him for it we didn't even get to see him ride off into the sunset no no he just his bike was out of gas <laughs> yeah. that the post credit scene is him like trying to hitchhike back home like the, he's got the one boot with the big toe sticking out. We'll cook for food. Uh, we'll fuck for food. <laughs> Trust me, I'm good. That should have been it. The, what the post credit scene should have been is that's all he's good at. So it's the fucking uh, Mark Wahlberg having to jack off for the redneck in uh, Boogie Nights. Let's let's move this show along. Let's go to real talk. So I, I can repeat everything that I said in this section. Oh, uh, I. This will be interesting. <laughs> It turns out, after all, Paul was just chasing Amy, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, is, is this a good time to talk? Yeah, no, this is great. So, uh, how are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, Wendy at the the cryobank uh, was talking about maybe. Oh yeah. Well, actually, my brother asked if I'd call you. Because I'm 18 and he's only 15, which is, you know, which is too young to call. Anyway, he'd like to meet you. Yeah, if you want to. Your your brother? Yeah, well, well, technically he's my half-brother. Each of my moms had a kid, you know, with, um, with your, with your sperm. Like in both of them? Yeah. Like in two? Uh-huh, like in gay. Oh, right, right, right on. 
Right on. Yeah, cool. I, I, uh... I love lesbians. And we are recording for Real Talk. All right. Real Talk on the kids are all right. Are they? No. Uh, released, is premiered, at, uh, premiered at Sundance Film Festival in January 2010, was released theatrically on July 30th, 2010. Budget, a modest budget of $4 million, box office return of a little under $35 million, it looks like. Uh, apologies if we do butcher the name here. Uh, directed by Lisa Cholodenko. Again, apologize if I fucked that up. Uh, written also by Lisa and Stuart Blumberg. Nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Annette Benning, Best Supporting Actor, Mark Ruffalo. Thank you. Best Original Screenplay, I want to say. Let me see here. That sounds right. Yes. And as I was discussing with Julio when preparing for this, the reason I didn't remember it getting nominated for so much is because it was from the 2011 Oscars, the Oscars we don't talk about, where the King's Speech beat out the Social Network for Best Picture. Did Social Network get uh, Best Adapted Screenplay? Because I want to say that that seems crazy if it hadn't. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin for Best Adapted. That was also kind of a shit year. Social Network. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm looking at like some of the uh, acting nominations. Um, but yeah. But no, the Best Picture. So King's Speech won over Black Swan, Inception, Social Network, Toy Story 3. Yeah, I'm sorry. This was not a shit year. <laughs> I, I would... I would rather watch the kids are all right than the King's Speech again. So there's that. Oh wow, we need to rewatch the King's Speech. And that's also it birthed the all-time reaction gif of Tom Hooper when he was announced. Maybe we'll do like a little like if you don't Tom know Hooper Tom Hooper arc. <laughs> if you, no thanks. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go and watch on YouTube when he was when they announced him winning Best Director. He he looks like he comes in his pants. Like he he's just it's really. The Lonely Island song "Jizz in My Pants" is actually based on that. <laughs> to quote our multiple time or multiple uh, time guest Reed, he's never seen anyone want something so bad in his life that Tom Hooper wanted that Oscar. Except maybe how much Mark Ruffalo wants Julianne Moore in this movie. God bless. I was trying to think if I found anything trivia wise. Uh, Robin Wright was originally considered for the role of Nick. Mark Ruffalo filmed all his shit in six days. You uh, and Mc- powerhouse performance. It really is. Um, Ewan McGregor was originally cast to play Paul, which I think I Julianne don't... Moore would have destroyed him. <laughs> That's the thing. I truly believe Annette Benning could beat the shit out of Ewan McGregor, so <laughs> I, I don't really think that dynamic would well, work. Well, I was just thinking of the sex scenes. Julianne Moore oh. would just like... Just like <laughs> Eat him for lunch. Yeah, he like passes out. She's <laughs> trying to wake him up. Hey, you're supposed to pull my hair. Uh, the film's title is based on the title of the song The Kids Are All Right by The Who. If We didn't make enough jokes about that in the beginning. Um, I think that was about it. I know the whole movie was filmed in uh, under a month, so th- that in of itself is really impressive. Uh, before we get too deep down the rabbit hole, Julio, what, uh, what were those lowly 7% saying? Uh, very few negative quotes, but all of them sound like excerpts from uh, Contrarian's Corner here. <laughs> um, Megan Basham from World says, The Kids Are All Right is the height of self-congratulatory, agenda-driven filmmaking. Whoa! As such, you can expect to hear from it come Oscar time. Uh, she was not wrong. She was not. Dorothy Wooden from Detai, British Columbia, says, A certain smugness creeps into the corners of the kids are all right. Morality doesn't have to mean puritanism, but there is something of that here. 
Uh, Michelle Alexandria from Eclipse Magazine says, The dialogue seems like it was pulled from a magazine full of bad liberal cliches. It feels as if people who used to be progressive, but want people to think they're still progressives, wrote this movie. Nick Shagger from Lessons of Darkness says, A long-form sitcom overly pleased with its own progressiveness. That's actually, I, I wouldn't word it that pretentiously, but that's a really <laughs> spot on. I mean, uh, we agree with you, Nick, but fuck you. <laughs> uh, Matthew Petrovic from Matt's Movie Reviews says, Sure, the kids are all right, but poor dad has been beaten to a pulp. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Robbie Collin from News of the World simply says, The critics are all wrong. Oh, I appreciate you saving that one for last. Cute. It may have been Juno. I can't remember what podcast we did or what episode, movie, what have you, that we were talking about. But it, this movie is guilty of that, too. You watch a movie like this, and this is a movie made to win awards. I don't know. Okay, so now we're in real talk. Yes. Where I must, I must come out to defend this movie. Real uh, talk is where we express how we really feel about this movie. Yeah. So, uh, this is your second time watching it. Correct, third maybe. No, I wouldn't have. Maybe. Not counting how many times you've watched the, the <laughs> Julianne Moore Mark Ruffalo sex scenes. Oh, I've got it all gifted on my phone, man. <laughs> um, so I guess we should predicate this with the age of hypersensitivity that we're in. Uh, <laughs> my thoughts on this movie do not at all reflect my social views on anything like that, nor. Yeah, not the the situations in this movie. Uh, it's not my opinion on those. I'm not saying that women be dumb. Men know what they're talking about. Because, um, like I said, one of the things I do applaud about the movie is the fact that they are a gay married couple is the least. Right. That like, is not. It, it, that's not part of the they, plot. It's that's... just what I really like how that starts. And it's just like any other movie where, OK, yeah, this is the married couple. This is the mom. And this is, you know, that these are the parents in the movie. Um, so positive things. Everyone's really good. Like, all the acting is really good. Dude, the acting is better than I remembered. <laughs> it's really good. I've, this is only my second time watching it. And, I mean, I want to say it's been several years since I watched it the first time. And that's uh, that's the thing of why I could see myself watching it again, because the acting is so strong. The, Has anything... Well, I guess... Go ahead and finish your... The your narrative releases. and the... Uh, I hate saying the word agenda, because that unfortunately in the time since this movie the eight years since this movie was made the word agenda means something almost completely different now than it did back then and so i, I wouldn't say the agenda of it but the the narrative and the i don't know and the things that it's really 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 difficult to say especially on a podcast because someone who might be curious what i mean by saying something like you can tell it's a movie made by a woman uh much much like Juno. no 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 no, no. <laughs> I was going to say the other side of the coin, much like the analogy made earlier, Chef, that's a movie you can clearly tell is made by a man. <laughs> so saying things like that is difficult to do in a podcast form where someone could potentially take it out of context. So i got to choose my words wisely as far as that goes. The narrative of it all, it to me, is not balanced, and the movie's hypocritical in the stances that it wants to take with the different characters. See, I, I, I'll, but I will help you elaborate because I, I remember feeling that way well, not exactly, but similarly, uh, the first time I watched it, mm -hmm. because I had no idea really about anything about this movie other than it was one of the Best Picture nominees and that somebody had told me that at some point that Ruffalo hooked up with, or maybe maybe the, the Oscars spoiled it for me. Maybe one of the clips they used was, 
either alluded to Julianne Moore. Yeah, they definitely had not showed the sex scene. That was the year the Oscars <laughs> aired after 10 p.m. <laughs> they saved the, the best actress uh, clips for like after 11. Uh, Jack Nicholson just with the popcorn in the front row. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. High fiving Ruffalo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I. But so the only other thing I knew was that Julianne Moore hooked up with Mark Ruffalo in the movie at some point, mm-hmm. right? And so watching it, I remember having this very, I just feeling disconcerted when the movie kind of, at least on that first watch, turned Ruffalo into the villain, mm-hmm. right? Because it seemed like it was a movie about five people that they all had their issues, but they also they all meant well, and how they have to deal with this new dynamic in their lives, right? And then suddenly. Not just that the affair happens, but that I think, especially on first watch, you could say that, well, Ruffalo kind of like was going after that from the beginning. Having watched it again, and I asked you during Contrarian's Corner, do you think that when he invites her to do his his landscaping, it's, you know, he, he really meant it? Mm-hmm. And as you were answering, I was like, you know, I don't think he did because of what the movie does later, right? I think that the filmmakers see, prove that she's capable enough that if we're supposed to think that, because the movie's not subtle in anything else. Yeah. So I think they would have gone a little bit over the top in showing us that, yeah, definitely Ruffalo wanted to just fuck yeah. from the beginning. So I think that instead, it's, if anything, it errs the other way, right? And that it maybe should have made it a little clearer that he had absolutely no interest in Julianne Moore until they connect later. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the movie doesn't paint him as a villain. It's not intended to paint him as a villain. It just paints him as the guy that, well, he's he just doesn't belong there, mm-hmm. you know? And the first time I watched it, it just felt really weird to me that, you know, the movie turned this character that I liked, I liked all of them, right? And just kind of like, just mistreated him at the end. And so to me, my memory of The Kids Was All Right was a movie that started like very complex and got very simple at the end. You know, even the way that Julianne Moore kind of like it's just forgiven for something that to me, especially on that first watch, was just so like, I don't know, you know, nasty. The, the sense that, yes, Annette Manning has her flaws and she's overbearing and she's, you know, drinking way too much or whatever. But you should not fuck around on her. Yeah. Right. She's clearly in the right for all her flaws. She's still clearly in the right in mm-hmm. that. And the first time watching it was so much harder to see Julianne Moore's side of that. This time around. And I couldn't tell you if it's just that, you know, it's been so many years and, you know, I've, uh, you know, age has changed the way that I perceive certain things, you know, my own experiences or whatever. But I was a lot more forgiving of the fact that Julianne Moore hooks up with Mark Ruffalo. I, I totally understood. I mean, I'm not saying that it's right, but I understood what she was going through. I understand that, you know, her marriage was on the rocks. And she makes a mistake. I mean, the movie never tells you that it was not a mistake. Yeah. And she has that big speech at the end, which, I mean, like I said, the movie's not subtle. It's just telling you exactly what the movie's about, which is like, it's not about the kids. It's about the marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And she says, I've forgotten all about this until we were watching it. You know, she says, marriage is really hard. And, you know, the magic goes away and you, there's a chance that you may not like that person anymore. You change as, you know, and they've been married for 20 years. Her speech to me, it really like justified what the movie does to her. And it does, it takes a very interesting position when it comes to the Ruffalo character, which is like, he is a threat to that family. And I don't care if he's a good guy. I don't care if he means well, you know, I don't care if he didn't like, you know, intend to cause all this. But in the end, that family needs to protect itself 
and cutting him out and cutting him out, you know, roughly mm-hmm. <laughs> in a very like straightforward way is it's what they need to do and they do it. So seeing it that way, this time when we got to the end and Ruffalo was just like lonely with his motorcycle and frustrated, I didn't feel that the movie was doing him at the service. I just felt like, well, the movie prioritized what it needed to do, just like this family prioritized what it needed to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he can scream that it's not fair, but like Annette Benning tells him, like, this is not your family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think that uh, that he's an interloper when she tells him, like, you're an interloper. Just, you know, it makes it sound like there's something a lot shadier, a lot more uh, uh, manipulative in the way that he's been handling this family. And I don't think that that's the case. But she has every right to say that because it's it's her family and she's just protecting it. Mm-hmm. So all this to say that I was able to kind of like see where everybody was coming from this time around much uh, much more in sync with, I think, what the filmmakers were intending the f- than the first time I watched it. So this is actually one of those times where, like, on rewatch, I like the movie a lot better than... I, and there's still plenty for me to make fun of in it, you know? And it is kind of comical. I don't know how intentional it is that Ruffalo ends up being, you know, the Christ figure to uh, <laughs> to white males everywhere. But I think I don't think that's an intentional reading. I think that that might be like the main difference between the way that how we are like looking at this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they set out to make the Mark Ruffalo character a villain because just how the fact that Annette Benning and and Julianne Moore are gay, are a gay couple, is kind of like it's not an issue. Like you know, they, it could have been a straight couple and yeah. you would have had the same dynamic in a way. It would have been the same problem. I think the fact that Ruffalo is uh, a white straight male, you know, it's just. It's not the point. No. You know? I mean, the story works a certain way, obviously, because it's a white uh, straight male, mm-hmm. you know, but but in the end, you could have a straight couple where they find that, you know, a sperm donor comes in and yeah. it still could alter the dynamics of that family and make it all really weird and, and you know, create extra conflict. So in that it could be a sperm donor. It could be like a, a egg donor, you mm-hmm. know, and it could be a completely different. It could be like a surrogate mother or whatever, you know, it could be a female. And, and then we would be saying, wow, that female is paying for <laughs> the sins of white men everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, Sounds like a man wrote that movie. There's no balance. That's my issue with it. I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. And like my whole interpretation of Ruffalo being vilified, it could just be at some point when, I mean, all the little things that really take me out of the movie immediately. The the son's name being Laser, like things like that. I mean, that yeah, that is like something that's just a quirk too many. Yeah, but at the same time, <laughs> a bridge too far. And you know, it's, it, but it, it's funny because I remember just now. I remember making this argument when we were talking about Juno, and I was defending Juno, and I was saying, as a script reader, you know, somebody that reads scripts and writes scripts, right? You try to encourage writers to to just to not be generic mm-hmm. you know to to try to be memorable try to like not i mean saying that to go for the quirk is simplifying it but you know you want to be specific you want to be you want to give this character a name that only this character could have and it's so I, I i have trouble it's ridiculous it makes me laugh it's really silly but at the same time it's like that's fine that he's named laser because you know it's very it tells you a lot about that character about about julianne moore and annette benning that named him laser specifically about Julianne Moore because he's the one that's, you know, biologically from her and and also about poor Josh Hutchinson who has to live being laser, you know? And it, it, it's probably not a coincidence that his character is the least developed and the least, like, 
the one that shines the least in this movie, you know, and it's the one that has the quirkiest name. <laughs> yeah, it's your rule though. The if a movie has you, you'll go along with oh, whatever. Yeah. So like my thing if like repeated things like that just consistently taking me out of it. Um, because it, it we talked about it, it like set the mold for the it, it at least now fits the mold I should say for the cliche gay couple movie. Um, but my issue with it is it's not balanced and it has nothing to do with gender orientation or anything like that. The story's not balanced. You have this family and I understand the movie's the story of the family, but you introduce this character and it's um, he's wrong. That's the story of the movie. He's wrong. They're right. It's. Uh, Kind of when I was thinking about it, it's uh, Obvious Child, that Jenny Slate movie I really don't like. Uh, that was my biggest issue with that movie. There's no balance. This is right. There's no reason to entertain or humor the idea elsewhere. But I think that he is... Of course, that's a, a bit of a different issue, but it, tonally and in story, um, it's like fucking Brothers. If Brothers had just ended with crazy Tobey Maguire, it would be like that. There's no balance to it. But then coming back around and balancing it out, and okay, here's the issue. Here's both sides to it. This are possible solutions that we have to do. In the per like, I fully concede that th that's just not the movie they wanted to make. That, right. So that that's the biggest it's, issue. So do you? That's think why that, it doesn't work for me. Do you think that you would feel better about it if Ruffalo had had some sort of redemption? Not redemption, but more of just like because it really to me the movie is he's wrong. But Julianne Moore's off the hook. <laughs> but Fuck not necessarily. Off. I think that the difference is that that Ruffalo doesn't have anybody to like to listen to his apology you know it's like or, or that cares for his apology uh but i think that as an audience member you know you can choose to see him as a somewhat sympathetic character as i do and i think that a lot of the of the critics that like the movie um i mean i didn't pick those quotes because they were not funny but a, a lot of people were just like you know they talk about five characters when they're talking about the movie how they're very five complex characters that you know uh even even if ruffalo ends up getting kicked out of the band his he's still portrayed in the movie as somebody that's not evil i think that like you said he's an idiot you know he, yeah that, that my confusion with that it, your point is why they introduced the whole trope of him like falling in love with her it, if it's not going to at least show how this affects him in the end or that situation i mean maybe uh, it's possible i would have gotten more enjoyment out of the story if like maybe he had a family and it showed how it affected them and things like that i, I think it's just not balanced but again fully conceding that's not the movie they right. wanted to it's make not, it's not mark ruffalo it's all right <laughs> which we all know he is <laughs> he, he's fine it's the justice he's an of avenger the, it's the justice of the peace it's and justice for all there's one way <laughs> way that's way up higher than the other um i was actually surprised by uh how much i enjoyed ruffalo here i mean no no that's not true i mean and it's not a surprise it's a national enjoyed, treasure right but no I, I guess how sympathetic i found his character because i went in Having seen the movie already, I came in expecting to hate him because, you know, I was like, oh, that's right. He he destroys that family or he almost destroys that family. So now I'm watching the movie. And from the very beginning, when he's introduced, I no longer think that he's a cool guy. Right. Mm -hmm. I think, oh, this guy's he's just a weasel. And then the movie kind of like taught me again that, no, he's just a human being. Yeah. Right. He's an idiot. He doesn't think things through. He definitely does something that, you know, he shouldn't have done several times oh yeah and then but i i think actually it's key that that he falls in love or that he thinks that he's in love with julianne moore because that shows you that oh it wasn't just 
if he was just hooking up with her for the sex or mm-hmm. for the you know the thrill of having sex with somebody that usually doesn't have sex with men, I think that would make him a very different character. But here he goes even as far as to like break it up, break it off with that girl that he was having sex with earlier. I guess mm-hmm. his regular regular booty call. Where he's like, you know, the one ethnic character in the entire movie. <laughs> hey, don't forget about the gardener that gets fired. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Because again, like it, it makes sense that those are the only places they would be because they would not be anywhere near all this white people drama. But that is that is such a key. Like you nailed it right in the head when that when when you said that we are like that's it makes sense that there's no more minorities because this is just this white people problems. <laughs> you know they have great houses. Yeah, they, I mean, they, and you you can jobs. concede that, that this is like a white people movie. Well, yeah, but so are most Woody Allen movies, and I like them. You, you, know? you don't say. <laughs> I mean, it's like Midnight in Paris. It's just Owen oh, Wilson. Midnight in Paris is great, yeah. Right, but it's, you know, it's Owen Wilson being just like a, a very, like, privileged white dude, and it's like he's so bored with how awesome he, he has it in this timeline yeah. that he needs to fly, go back to the past just to, to experience some thrills. Midnight and White Privilege is the name <laughs> of that movie. Uh, but yeah, this here, it's... um. I do appreciate it kind of turns it on its head, and I, I kind of found myself giggling uh, over it. The way Annette Benning and Julianne Moore's characters are written, it's not the gender that plays it. It's just that trope of, that works in movies of the one in the relationship is like the by-the-books, glasses-wearing, straight-laced, right. no-nonsense, and yeah. the other one's got the, the flair for the gold, the the uh fiery attitude and you know the buck the system yeah i don't really i don't really know i'm not knowledgeable she wears about red panties where we were in like gay cinema when when the kids are right came out as far as like you know how revolutionary it was to have a mainstream movie at the time with big name actors that portrayed you know a gay couple that was relatable now that we're in you know real talk and say like i don't have a problem i i enjoy i think it's cool that they were trying to just really demystify lesbian couples for a mainstream audience mm-hmm. right i think that even like, you know, Chasing Amy, which we both liked and everything, you know, but it's like such a cute lesbian and so like quirky and like whatever, you know, and uh, and here, like Annette Benning and Julian Moore, like real people, yeah, you know, like their sex life kind of sucks right now and, and they're not like, they're not, they don't look like made up all the time. They look like working women, mm-hmm. you know, that have two kids and are fucking tired. <laughs> it, it's, and that's good that, you know, at the same time, as as uh, regressive as our current like social situation yeah. could be, you know, it still feels a little silly in 2018. You know, to see a movie that it almost feels like it tries too hard to tell you, see, they're just like the rest of us. It's like yeah, to the, us right now, we're like, well, of course they're like the rest that, of us. I was about <laughs> to say that's the saddest part. There's people that could watch. Like, I'm sure there were people that watched this when it came out. And it was like they they have problems just like I have problems. Yeah. There's that uh, you've seen uh, that Kevin Smith movie. It was like a Mary, Mary make a porno. But you've seen it, right? So bad, yeah. There's that moment when uh, Seth Rogen... I wonder if I brought this up for the podcast already, but uh, Seth Rogen is talking to Justin Long and I think Brandon Routh. They're a gay couple. And Seth Rogen is just fascinated because he's seen them argue. And and at some point, he just says to himself, they're like real people. (laughs) (laughs) Or they argue like real people, too. I don't know. It's it's great. Uh, The other thing of like the balance, I feel... I don't know if it's by, I can't tell if it's by design or whatnot, but uh, the laser character, like he finally stands up to his friend, bully friend. But it seems to me that both the kids, they're all right, but their stories aren't. <laughs> it seems like they both build up to a certain, it's like a non-climax. 
because they don't really follow up on it. I, I felt a little bit like that too, uh, especially the first time around. And I think that uh, I even wrote a joke that I didn't get to put in Contrarian's Corner, where I was like, the movie, the title of the movie has to tell us that the kids are all right because they're not really in the movie, so we can't tell. But I think that it's more uh, that you can see the influence of Ruffalo there. You know, and, and that's why I think that the movie is not necessarily like vilifying him because you can see that he does have a positive effect on the kids. You know, I think that uh, Josh Hutcherson stands up to his idiot of a friend finally more because Ruffalo told him that he thought that he was an idiot and he didn't like the way he talked to him and everything mm -hmm. than because of anything Annette Benning and uh, Julian Moore said. And that has nothing to do with gender either. No. You know, it's just sort of the fact that your parents are telling you something, and suddenly, when a stranger, a cool stranger, tells you the same thing, you may pay more att more attention to him. So, in that sense, you know, I think that that's it's not for the benefit of uh, lasers. You know, it's more to show us that oh yeah, see, Ruffalo is having like a good influence on him. I especially. Laser. I don't think that his story is. It's not flushed out. It's right. Like, it's, he's just what, there. What becomes of this mystifying young Josh Hutcherson now? And then Joni, uh, Mia, she's so like such a good actress. I kind of felt great, she was man. underutilized when she's in this. It's really good, but it's kind of peaks and valleys in terms of like focus on her. And she has the there's like the tease of her having like you know the drinking issue that. Uh, Net Benning has, but then it's just kind of okay. Everything's fine. I guess that's the thing. If if the narrative of this was that it's not about the moral turpitude, it's not about the situation. It's about just this family that fuck it, we're in it together, no matter what. We're a family. If that's the picture that you paint, then the to me the ending makes a lot more sense. Well, I mean, I think that's that is the ending. The one thing that to me fails, where the movie like drops the ball. And I said in Contrarian's Corner is that they have this big blowout, right, where she shows up, uh, uh, Mia Wasikowska shows up drunk. She tells both her parents off. Mm -hmm. And then literally the next scene is just them having dinner. And I know no that. hangover, it, nothing. Right. I mean, it could be, you know, weeks later or whatever, but it just feels like, wow, we were at such an emotional peak. And you're wondering, how do they survive this? What happens the next morning? And instead, it's just like, they're fine. <laughs> And then Ruffalo shows They're up and they right. yell at him. They're all right. Uh, so I that, guess that's the thing. They all bottled up their rage just hoping that Mark Ruffalo would show up. Oh, that's they were waiting. <laughs> you know he's coming back. So we're going to They cut out him. the scene of Annette Benning looking on the curtain saying, I wish a motherfucker would. <laughs> I I really, this movie, dude, it, it really hit some buttons. I, I really, like, in a good way, I, I really enjoyed some of the stuff that it was saying uh, this time around. I really. Annette Benning kind of, you know, gets the acting accolades for most of the movie, but I think Julianne Moore really brings it in that final speech. And Annette Benning is great there too because mm -hmm. you see how, you know, they keep cutting to the reaction shots where she is there with the two kids. And at first, Julianne Moore is talking, and Annette Benning is just doing the reassuring thing to the kids, like you know, she like squeezes her shoulders or whatever. But then at some point, halfway through, she breaks mm -hmm. and then she starts crying. It's it's so good. But that I think that that speech it really recontextualizes. It it really did for me at least you know recontextualize the movie for me, uh, as far as you know, you're watching like a family in crisis and they they manage to kind of like pull out of it. I mean at the end it looks like they're gonna be okay, but it maybe if you can put that scene where she gives the big Braveheart speech, if you put that before Ruffalo shows up, I think that would 
help my issue of the balancing act of it because then i'd just be like oh okay they just they don't give a shit just because they love each other so much it's not you know moral high ground that they're trying to stand on but i think that then you would rob annette benning from having a moment of you know the moment where she basically tells him stay away from my family Mm -hmm. i think it's a lot stronger if she does it even though julianne moore hasn't apologized yet (laughs) you know so again it's you're going to shortchange a character one way or another. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad. I, I think Ruffalo's character can take it because he's a he's, white man. He's the expendable. <laughs> and he's so good, too. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, dude, in, it's the little details. I, I'm not kidding about that That smile after Julian Moore first kisses him. Yeah. Or they kiss, I guess. it's that's That's just phenomenal acting. Yeah, he's, I mean, I think we've talked about him on this podcast before. He's great. He's been in plenty of things that I don't particularly enjoy, This barring this movie, but he's been in some stinkers, but he's always manages to be good. Is there a movie where he's not likable, though? Like, even if the movie's bad? I can't think, I was thinking about it during the movie, like, is there anything where I've been like, fuck Mark Ruffalo, he's just a piece of shit in this movie? (laughs) No, not to my knowledge. And also, I mean, can you imagine this character, but played by somebody that's not as like... Watch him, like, play Hitler in his next role or something. (laughs) She's like, aww. (laughs) (laughs) He's... He had his reasons. <laughs> his smile. Um, I he, mean, by the same token, though, can you imagine this character played by a character that's by an actor that's not as likable as Ruffle, and then you would really have that problem of being oh, yeah. a villain. If this was fucking Fossbender from Fish Tank, yeah. <laughs> then you got, like, fucking... He know, knew what he was doing. Stalin-level villain on your hands. He'd be nervous that he's going to hit on Mia Mosakowska next. <laughs> that's, that's his goal. That's his target. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's clear as, clear as mud, as they say. Uh, <laughs> my my thing with this is just my read on the movie, and it's the pieces of this machine are all individually shiny and bright and wonderful and top notch. It's just in the end, what it pushes together, what it creates, rather. I'm just left kind of. Eh. And then comparing it to Obvious Child is just in the terms of the balance of the story. Obvious Child is a far, far inferior film to this, which that's another one. I, the fucking world was on fire when that came out. And I, this, I think, it, this was kind of like an American Hustle type thing if I watched after Ooh. all the hi- – well, call, I'm, it's not that bad. Chaz is like rubbing his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's got the typewriter. This is what I waited for. Uh watched it in the zenith the like the peak of all the hype going on and then i was just like eh. because trust me you can attest to this there's nothing better than watching one of these fucking indie films that is even better than all the hype like, oh yeah the, the feeling of exhilaration like good time for example when i came out of that as, as if i haven't plugged that movie enough but uh or um well not, you mentioned american hustle so we need to balance balance the, the balancing act yeah, yeah. Uh, not an independent film, but another one was Dunkirk. Like all the shit I heard, and I was like, "No way, it's that good." And then I came out, I was like, "Yes!" Just so supercharged. And there's others like American Hustle that you'll be like, "Fuck this!" And then something like this when it was over, it was just kind of like, mm, I don't know. But again, not a regret. Full time watching it. Certainly not something I would say is a ninety three percent or an A plus anything like that. But I want to I want to give it like four stars out of five. And really, I. It, uh, that full start that it's lost is just because I think they kind of dropped the ball. Like I said, after after the big emotional scene. I mean, they, the fact that they did it in a month seems uh, accurate because it's like the two story arcs with the kids had like just a uh, cauterized finish. <laughs> All right, done. And then, yeah, they had to jump the, the gun with that next scene. So 
certainly fun fun watching together because we laughed at the same quirks and yeah it and there is something to be said for for the for that narrative that we had in contrarian's corner because it can be read by somebody you know uh that clearly was by those seven (laughs) percent yeah i i don't think somebody mentioned something about like morality the moral high ground doesn't need to be puritanical i don't think this movie is puritanical i mean the problem is not that julianne moore is having sex with mark ruffle the problem is that she's having sex with you know somebody that's not her wife yeah the problem (laughs) is she's married and has children and right all this shit um yeah i I mean to me it's it's failings if i use that word liberally with this uh is in its execution as a film has nothing to do with the subject matter or the uh quote-unquote agenda again i don't really feel there's an agenda there if anything it's just trying to present a shocking notion that gay people are the same as we are right i mean you could but you could see somebody getting mad and saying that you know there is an agenda that is just like diversification or whatever you call it you know like promoting diversity and having like this story but it happens to be a lesbian couple instead of a straight couple so and what I, I i work with a couple people to feel that way <laughs> you know so i can tell you that to some people it's like an actual concern that's you know? unfortunate yeah but it, it's out there way bigger things to be concerned with uh yeah i my final point i as we were watching this my i was like point. Uh, maybe we should consider having a, a another category in the Embrys, like best sex scene, like the Embry for sex scene, and the, we've and we've the, watched some bangers, no pun intended. Yeah, but yeah there's been some whoppers. I in mean, there. this year the it would be like definitely you have this in contention as as well as uh, the the Nero in Righteous Kill. Cool. <laughs> and the, all the crunches he did for that role, I'm telling you. I mean, we would have to go back over the whole rigmarole, the whole gamut of films we've covered. Yeah, so you yeah. gotta put in Affleck ass. You gotta put in uh, oh, yeah, Reindeer, Reindeer games. games. Get naked Charlie's Theron and naked Ben Affleck. Did Travolta have any sex scenes in the summer of Travolta? Uh, none that were explicit. Like I don't think we saw. I mean, he he clearly he had well he had the sexy haircut with Kira Sedgwick, but that was not you know that wouldn't qualify. That was the erotic. <laughs> That's a different category. <laughs> no, Travolta would sweep it just for the the towel shot from Basic. Yeah, there you go. How cut he got for that fucking movie. It's Travolta and the towel having sex. <laughs> all right, that was the kids are all right. What what's uh, episode seventy two? Jennifer Lopez, the boy next door. Who? That is. You haven't seen that one. I right? have not. I don't. I'm trying to think of any Jennifer Lopez movie I've seen. Out of sight, probably. Tell me you've seen at least the good ones. Uh, Selena? Selena, yeah, duh. They pretty much, if you go anywhere in southern Texas, they welcome. <laughs> Here's a DVD copy. Have you seen Selena? Do you own Selena? <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Whataburger's just down the street. Uh, okay, so we'll go ahead and segue into plugs. I don't really have anything this week. No, no, are we doing plugs or are we doing Halloween first? I figured, you know, the punches are gonna fly, so we can. <laughs> so, so let's let's do the friendly stuff first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've been playing a lot of UFC three. I bought that for my PS four last week. The career mode on it is fucking awesome. I know I've realized I plug a lot of video games on here, but that's kind of what I do in my free time. So nothing wrong with that, man. No. I wish I could play more video games. <laughs> uh, yeah, the UFC three game is really dope. They had a flash sale on the PlayStation Network for it, so I got it. I mean, it's like any sports game. The improvements are usually just aesthetically or visually 
but they incorporated this brand new career mode that's like super addictive that I am having a hard time put down putting down. Uh, but our usual stuff, the festive years, provide our opening and closing tracks. Our clo- uh, opening, uh, last stand, closing track, summer of '99. Uh, their album, "Don't Let Me Use You." Our friend Hans Rothgieser from the Nacion Combi podcast, he did our logo. He just featured in these awesome flyers that Alex made, and I just got printed today. And uh, I was so happy that you asked me for his Twitter handle so we could properly credit him because mm-hmm. the logo he created is like half the flyer. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's good. Uh, but yeah, he uh, you can reach him at Mildemonios, that's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S on Twitter. And also you can email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com if you need a logo. Or if you want to say hi. <laughs> and uh, we'll be plugging it throughout the entirety of November. Uh, our friend and guest reads Film Festival, The Other Worlds, Austin Film Festival. Yes. Is uh, first weekend in December. Yeah. So if you're in Austin that weekend, you should get your tickets now. Yeah. <laughs> you you can, get them online. It's like a film festival in that you can buy a pass or a badge or a day pass and all that. And they do sell individual tickets. But it's at the Flicks Brew House out in Round Rock. It's a really good time. They got good chicken wings, good beer. It's definitely worth it. Just get the pass. That way, you can just watch whatever you want, uh, and you still have to make some decisions. Because uh, I think they're big movies. They play on both screens at the same time. Mm-hmm. But then all the other movies, you basically every show you have to choose: do I watch one or the other? Yeah, uh, it's always a good time. Now, as far as uh, my plugs, were obviously I wanted to mention that we were at the IMDb Journey podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Thanks again, guys, for having us. That was a lot of fun, even though we got our asses kicked on the draft. I, I'm i still trying to decide. I, I demand a recount. Yeah, you know, I think that we just, they just played us. They, we, their mind games worked like gangbusters on us. Because <laughs> you see, what they did was they made us feel guilty about having questions that were too hard on the trivia part right and so they planted that it was their long con exactly so that by the time we got to the draft we felt so guilty that we just let them pick first Mm -hmm. which gave them the matrix which we knew was gonna happen and we still let it happen (laughs) and i mean if if all the feedback i've read is is you know an accurate representation of how the majority of the voters felt really what lost us was not the fact that we had uh two sandra bullock movies but it was the fact that we didn't have the matrix (laughs) Well, it's uh, still those of us can't who fault them. D- those of you who voted for us, even though we didn't have the Matrix. God bless. God bless those of you who voted for uh, for Daniel and Dean, even though they had the Devil's Advocate. I just don't understand you. <laughs> uh, but but they have no. said that they <laughs> they will be happy to come on as guests when we do the Devil's Advocate, uh, and that is surprisingly enough. That's a gray area. It's, it's not gonna rotten. have to wait till at least episode ninety. We got Walter Mitty. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And it's, then 100, when we revisit American Hustle, we can make fun of Chaz for two hours. <laughs> well, American Hustle is is uh, is not a great area. It's, I understand, it's, but oh, we're, we're, we're breaking we're, all the rules for episode oh, yeah. 100. 100. It's just going to be us. Just real talk for two hours. This movie sucks. This Commentary movie sucks. track on uh, American Hustle, where it's us just calling Chaz, just <laughs> fucking with him the whole time. Um, and then... My other plug. So, yeah, so listen to that episode, even though the results are out. Uh, it's still worth listening to. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, especially when uh, Alex made up a Clive Owen movie that doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. I, I said control instead of trust. Trust is a very good, albeit very rough movie. Uh, control 
is also a very good, albeit very rough movie, but it's about the lead singer of Joy Division who killed himself. Has no Clive Owen is nowhere near. I don't even know if Clive Owen's seen or heard of Control. Well, now he has, obviously, because he, he heard we were going to be on the IMDb journey, and yeah. he, he tuned in, and then he was appalled at your performance. Uh, but anyway, the other pl- uh, plug I, I wanted to do was this podcast called Films on Trial, and uh, they are a British podcast. Uh, why do I mention they're British, like, right off the bat? Because, not going to lie, it's you can tell they're British. <laughs> they're just cool in that British way, mm. where, like, they're just kind of, like, pretty laid back it feels like they're, they're just like effortlessly putting out this podcast that's just like really cool they start with this jazzy like intro which i love and then it's just like five guys and what they do is a little bit of, uh, of contrarian's corner in the sense that they'll pick a movie and then they assign roles so they have one person that's the defense one person that's the the prosecution two people that are character witnesses and then one judge and so the judge is supposed to determine if the movie goes on the hit list or the shit list, depending nice. on the arguments of the defense and the and the prosecution, putting aside how he really feels about the movie. Um, and the character witnesses are there to give the real opinion. So if I'm defense, you know, of a movie that I hate, I still have to pretend that I like it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but if I was the character witness, you know, when the judge asked me about how I feel about a certain thing, I just respond with my true feelings so it makes for the whole thing it's it's pretty, fun it's it's a lot of fun and uh when they're done with like all their their major like arguments before they do the verdict they'll have like a few games so they'll do like some trivia and they do a caption contest every week where they'll put up like a still from the movie that they're going to discuss in the next episode and then people on twitter like provide the captions and uh and i actually won uh for the one they did for an interview with the vampire Nice. And so, so we got a. I won, and I happened to be like the day that they were also gonna like mention our podcast. So it was like a nice connection. <laughs> it was a twofer. It was a twofer. It was it was good. They they seem to really have liked the, the summer of Travolta. Uh, the guy uh, Gavin, I think he's the guy that does the Twitter. So he already talked to me about it, and yeah, he was he was pretty amused by the Travoltis. Nice. So that that just feels like we a win. We were too. <laughs> I, yeah, it's like anybody that says they like the Travoltis, I was like, we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> We're good people. Yeah. So Films on Trial, look them up on iTunes. Like all the podcast platforms are there and also on Twitter. Nice. All right. So Halloween was good. We'll see you next time. <laughs> uh, no, we actually... We, or, or, or was it, we're, Alex? We're usually not really good about this. We usually at least say how we feel about something to one another. And we're going into this cold. I don't really know how Julio Well, well I know you liked it. I did. It, it, it was... Uh, and I've just been... Uh, I've been sending you texts and then sending them to Ed, showing them to Eddie and laughing. It was like... I'm fucking with Alex Nielsen. No, he has no idea how I feel. Uh, it was a, a real, like a B plus is what I would say. Um, so for in case it's your first time listening or I guess I don't know. I know there's like a lot of movie dicks I suck on this, but I, I know it's like Good Time and uh, Reindeer Games. But uh, so you, re- you have to have mentioned your love for the original Halloween when we did the Rob Zombie episode. I had to. The original Halloween is in my top three movies of all time fucking love it uh i enjoy the second one yeah if you're listening to this and if you listen to by chance our halloween episode uh four i really enjoy but outside of that they can all kind of fuck off um (laughs) difference being halloween 2 and halloween 4 i enjoy as a horror movie whereas the original one is like this actual movie i hold in high regard so we're getting into the spoiler zone now the new halloween this is not a spoiler it's pretty common knowledge it 
picks up where the original left off. So if you've not seen two through Resurrection or two through Rob Zombies two, don't worry. Um, if you have, cool, because there's a lot of uh, fucking nods to the franchise. Did you notice the how he gets his jumpsuits just like four? How he beats the shit yes. out of that mechanic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's uh, like some kills and things that are kind of nods to the second and the. There's no homage to the third. I was kind of hoping someone would have a silver shamrock. Hat. There was no man in black, at least as far as I could tell. <laughs> Unless that was supposed to be the weird, like, sheriff or whatever, the black dude with the hat. Oh, yeah. That, I don't know if that was supposed to be a nod to it, but that character, he's also the the fraternity brother from Road Trip. That's I know he's been in other things, but that's he's the one that scares DJ Qualls to the point of fainting. So, new Halloween. Jamie Lee Curtis, awesome. Yes. Judy Greer, awesome. Yes. Uh, I don't know her name off the top of my head, but the girl who played the granddaughter, having never seen her before, thought she was really solid. Yeah, I think they got a newcomer. Um, the Wiz, the the dad from Enough Said. Like him as an actor, but the character was really annoying. Uh, he felt like, like they gave him way too much screen time for what he amounted to, which was just another victim. Mm-hmm. Um, opening credits, awesome. How yes. It was like the original... Um, so what else did I really like in there? There wasn't uh I was fearful there was gonna be like shoehorned comedy considering who was doing it. Dude. What what the two fucking cops that have like the riff about what are they talking about? Is it like some sort of sandwich? Okay. So <laughs> you're jumping the gun here. Um there's like a fifteen minute window of the movie that I was like, no, <laughs> Oh, is this when uh, we're on full on spoilers, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So is this when like the doctor becomes yes. Mike? Yes. So from the doctor <laughs> killing the police chief up until the whiz gets killed, basically Michael gets in the house uh-huh. after Jamie uh-huh. Lee Curtis. I was like, fuck me dead. Like they're going to screw this up because <laughs> that guy turning and then he fucking put the mask on. I was like, dude, what the fuck? Because, you know, we, we in some of the other sequels and remakes, that that's the thing. Someone, my biggest fear, what I thought was happening, was Michael was dead and he was going to inherit Michael. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. Jamie or the sister in the Rob Zombie ones. I was like, fuck, no. And then I kind of thought it was cool. I was like asleep in the back seat and the mask was right there and the girl was with him. But then Homeboy, like, his shoulder's all fucked up, yet he can carry this fucking 240-pound man and put him in the back seat of the car. And then... The riffing with the cops when they're talking about the sandwich and the whatever. And then... Was that a reference to the funny cops in Five? No, like, it could have been. My (laughs) hope would have been if that was the case, so they just put the boon. Uh uh But then I think people would be like, what the fuck? (laughs) So up until then, and then when he kills the two cops and somehow has time to make a nativity scene out of their bodies (laughs) and then just kind of scoot the car along to the front lawn. um, And then that, that was also... You want to talk about a movie with a potential agenda? Someone could say it's way too uh, "I am woman, hear me roar" driven, which I think is awesome. Oh yeah, 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 because it shows how fucking dumb men are. Like in uh, not Michael, obviously, but um, then like for the whole movie, for the Wiz being I don't know the guy's name, so I apologize. Um, John Golson, who I follow on Twitter, was talking about how he really likes that dude as an actor. But anyway, for the whole movie, telling. Um, you're crazy. You know, you need to be smarter. He's what quintessential white man. What's going on here? Let me see what's happening. <laughs> then he gets strangled. Um, How do you feel about the kills? 
I enjoyed that most of them were off screen because that's how the original is. Mm-hmm. And the not Jonah Hill, the kid who got impaled on the fence, that was the one I was like. I, I felt that he was a young Josh Gad, actually. Oh. He had, he had very, like, the Josh Gad features. Gaddian features. Gaddian features. Uh, that, so the actual finding him, I thought that was kind of a bit much, but the the scene with him was awesome with the motion sensor light mm-hmm. in the yard. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah. And, and in that little 15 minute sequence that I was referencing, the only kill that I was like, man, when he stomped the dude's head in, cause the whole movie was like, it was violent, but not in like an overt sense. I did think it was kind of cool that the teeth when he dropped all the teeth. In yeah. The, yeah. I thought that was really cool. I mean, that was in the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, um, the guy, it was Nick Castle. The guy who played Michael was the guy who played Michael in the original. But he was not. He didn't do like stunts, but like the guy with the gray hair standing at the insane asylum and the guy driving the car, that was Nick Castle. But then, but through most of the movie, it's like the new guy, whatever uh, his name is. I, my understanding was Nick Castle pretty much did all of the Michael stuff except the stunts. No, see, I thought Nick Castle was there for like just like a handful of shots. Oh. That dude is 70. Yeah, movie's <laughs> forty years old. Um, so it could be, but that he's credited as Michael. Uh-huh. I thought the whole narrative spin on it, uh, or not narrative spin, but the modernization of the story and the present day aspect was like spot on. Not something I'm sure is going to age well, but the whole fact that that those British that British couple were podcasters yeah. that were trying to like do you know making a murderer type shit. I thought that was really nice. Did you feel that that they were kind of like written out kind of suddenly my thing with that is i think they were in there for too long i, I they were obviously going to be the first kills so yeah so they should have gone to it sooner yeah because otherwise it just felt like oh they're going to be main we're gonna players be like part of it right yeah. and instead it, it took a while um my problem with halloween is my problem with a lot of horror movies so in a way you could just put most of it on the fact that I'm just not a, a horror person. The problem with it is that Mark Ruffalo took all the blame. <laughs> yeah. The problem is Ruffalo, uh, he, did, he didn't get a, a redemption at the end. <laughs> he murdered all those people. Has it, sex with Judy Greer and then just gets booted <laughs> to the curb. He gets shamed by Jamie Lee Curtis. It's <laughs> like, you come near her again, I'll fucking blow your balls off. Uh, no, it, it, I because I've, I've raised my concerns uh you know to other people online and the most common response i get it was like it's well it's a horror movie mm-hmm. and i was like well yeah it's a horror movie but it's a horror movie but that shouldn't give you in my opinion that shouldn't just give you an out anytime that something doesn't make sense right no. uh at the same time especially I'm, for a movie uh considering the platform they're on they're continuing from the first one so you're putting yourself on a completely different pedestal than all right the horror movies. right yeah, because it'd be as if also saying, "Well, it's a horror movie and it's a sequel, so come on, lower your yeah, expectations." Yeah, it was like Friday the Thirteenth Part Nine. Then... <laughs> yeah, it's like you should just be happy that she came oh, back. Wait, no, I'm, that's gonna bug me. Uh, Friday the Thirteenth. It would be eleven if there was a new one. Isn't there a new one coming out too? I think they're rebooting it. Like LeBron James is the <laughs> yeah. producer on it. Um, God bless. So I mean, I gave it three stars on my Letterbox review because the acting is great. I think that Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic, and I kind of and, and I really like the first half of the movie. I mm-hmm. think that they set things up to be very interesting, kind of a little bit like they set them up in four, mm-hmm. which we watched, you know, very recently. In the sense that there is a threat, and I think that most people react to that threat in a very believable manner. 
right? So Jamie Lee Curtis obviously behaves irrationally, but also rationally. You know, to other people, she's just overreacting. But the way that she's acting makes sense. And One of my favorite parts of the entire movie is the look on Pam Greer's face when it's happening. She's like... Uh, not you mean Pam Julie Greer? Greer? Jesus. <laughs> like, did I miss Pam Greer's cameo? <laughs> Fuck me. Uh, that would be wonderful. She just comes in. Trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, Judy Greer. When like Michael comes in and she's having to get in the bunker and it's like all happening. The realization right. of it's like, like... Oh, God, it's happening. Like I years of therapy and all this shit that uh, I went through uh, and this is actually happening. And I thought that was a really well acclimated story because it's true. If It's not to say that every single person be that same, but there's a very good chance if someone tries to murder you and they're still at large, you're going to overreact and live your life a certain way. Right. It, and then, you know, it, it's also the fact that I understand why people wouldn't believe that he's a threat at first, you know, and then, but then once he escapes that they would automatically believe that he's a threat and that's for why Will Patton instantly like jumps on it and mm -hmm. the sheriff and everybody right so all that was like really good i'm like this feels like a solid horror movie that's updating on things that the way that the original did it but now we're you know 40 years later we have new technology we have new acting you know standards you know yeah. and all that stuff so and then the movie becomes a horror movie <laughs> and then i just and then people start acting it's no longer believable the way that they act uh And it, funnily enough, it starts with the 15 minutes that you mentioned, uh -huh. because I swear, the doctor kills Will Patton, and it's a big moment, right? It jolted me. And he, like, sits up like an inflatable, like an Easter bunny <laughs> with yeah. the mask on. And, and he has a mask on. I think I audibly went, no. <laughs> well, I remember laughing, like laughing kind of like in a horrified way. And I also thought that there was a good chance that they were about to just basically give us a new michael myers mm -hmm. and i was like well that's a really ballsy move and if they pull it off then that's great right and then he put him in the car and i was like oh no he's <laughs> gonna wake up right but then so from then on it's just kind of silly because the doctor who's being let's say quirky up to this point now he goes completely bananas and i just i, I had trouble buying i his did love the thing. one line of dialogue though where they just explain uh when jamie lee curtis oh you're, you're the, the new, new loomis. loomis yeah yeah that i laughed <laughs> but then When we get to to the house and the moment the house, it's I mean the action is it's well shot, it's it's exciting in a way, but it's also just it's it's made Formulaic. of well it's just made up of all those like horror movie decisions, right? I could not believe that he he killed the dad, he killed the whiz, he's out there, they know he's out there. Jamie Lee Curtis tells Judy Greer get in the bunker, and then Jamie Lee Curtis puts her fucking ear to the door. And just waits. It's like she's literally putting her head there just so that Michael can break through the glass pane and grab her head. And that is not how, I mean, that's not how anyone would behave. What would nobody? I can't think of a single person that would do that, knowing that the murderer <laughs> would, what you would assume, especially superhuman someone seasoned strength. in the situation. Right. It, it, yeah. The fact that it's her making such a rookie mistake yeah. is insane, right? She. I would think that considering that the movie is trying to sell us that she has been preparing for the last 40 years for this. She does a piss poor job, right? It, Michael gets the upper hand on her several times. Yeah. And and if if it really this was all part of the plan to just lure him into the bunker so she could like set him on fire. Yeah. I I think that she didn't do as well as she should have, right? But even then, she sets him on fire and she leaves the house. How can you not how can you leave before he's a hundred percent dead? 
that's there there's your open door and it's how much money it made i guarantee there's going to be another of one of course right yeah. but but as a character i wish that they would they, they would have justified that you know there's no reason for him to leave they have the upper hand on him, uh, the upper hand on him he's trapped he's on fire just unload on him blow him up get the the town drunks and all the local law enforcement yeah. just to shoot him up i mean they have portrayed her as a character that will not rest until he's dead except that when she finally has him she just walks away mm-hmm. <laughs> and that bugged me so much that's the ending and they couldn't like nail that you know and and, and it's yes it's because they can't you know kill him on screen they yeah. can't kill him on camera they have to leave the door open it, uh, it, it was no it was i feel you down. on that um well, i've always said to me that was the most admirable part about rob zombie's first one how they kill him in the end and then He's just alive again. And Zombie's like, oh, oh, you want me to come back from that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, so, but yeah, the first like two thirds of it, I agree, set a groundwork for something kind of. The big one is when he kills like that 13 year old kid. I yeah. was just like, whoa. I was like, we're not fucking around. Yeah. Um, and cinematically speaking, the, the there's that awesome one shot of him weaving in and out of like those two houses. That's really just fucking killing cool. people. Yeah. And- there's the homage to part two when he kills a woman making the sandwich. Like I said, it's the best Halloween movie we've had in 30 years. So that's one thing to be thankful for. I think the big things that I wanted to be good were good. Yeah. And I, I heard that they cut a lot of stuff out. So I wonder if the stuff that they cut would have given more of a purpose. To, we're going to have uh, the producers cut with more Paul Rudd explaining the man in black and the runes. Uh, well, I, I felt that her boyfriend also just kind of disappeared from the movie yeah. after – the movie devoting a lot of time in the beginning to him and the relationship that she had with him. Uh, sidebar, we saw it at the draft house. And you know the pre-shows they always do? Mm-hmm. They showed the trailer for Bonnie and Clyde during the pre-show. And we were like, why the fuck did they show that? Because it was all like Halloween oh, stuff. Oh, I dare it. And then during the movie, yeah. I was like, oh. Um, yeah, when that happened, uh, I, I watched it with, with Eddie. And Eddie was like, oh, you know, what's going to happen is... Uh, Michael is going to kill him thinking that it's her because he's dressed, he's in drag. And at the time, it seemed like a completely plausible thing. I mean, having seen the movie, I was like, no, that now that's not what would happen. Then MAGA Michael's defense would be like, what type of man dresses like a woman? <laughs> um, he had it coming. Jesus. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I wasn't kidding in that I, for whatever reason, had it in my head that Judy Greer was just like, only gonna be like in two scenes, like and a so, cameo. She drops, she drops her kid off at yeah, grandma's at the beginning of the killed. movie, and yeah. <laughs> she picks him up at the end. Yeah. So the fact that she's in the entire movie, I was like, fuck yeah, because I really like her, and I think she's kind of an underutilized actress. Um, but yeah, the things I wanted to be good about it were good. As nerdy as it is, the mask was good, which is always a huge concern going into the Halloween movies. You, you watch two of them, so you understand they can vary greatly. Um, yeah, I, I think it's. It'll definitely be interesting for rewatch. I mean, I'm going to buy it when it comes out. But as a huge fan of the franchise, I think I went into it almost cynical, like worrying too much and then trying to find things wrong with it. So the things I mentioned, I really didn't like that one little sidetrack they take. But overall, it, was, it wasn't it was like going to see episode one where it was completely deflating or anything like that. I really enjoyed it. And also, I think um, the bar was kind of low because I'm like, what are Danny McBride and David Gordon Green going to do with a Halloween movie? So, Guy from The Sitter? The guy from Your Highness? The sitter's solid. Oh, my God. You, too. <laughs> I think Corey has been telling me that that's a surprisingly good movie. And it... I wouldn't say it's surprising. It's 
it has parts that are surprisingly good. <laughs> Sam Rockwall is a crazy coked out bad guy is really good. But yeah. So it doesn't sound like we're too far off. No. No, I think that you you have a more personal connection with the franchise so obviously the highs are higher for you mm-hmm. to me it was just like a, a, a good movie that dropped the ball but i but i am fully aware that it works better for people that are more into the, the genre and the franchise than i am so yeah. so it's the, it knows what it wants to do and it does it really well i'm pretty forgiving of the things you're talking about the big uh, fucking broadway at the house at the end where they're chasing each other type thing just because it built up to the recreation of the shot from the the end of the first one when uh, when he looks and she's gone yeah Yeah. that was that was pretty good chef's kiss cool well I'm glad that it didn't come to fisticuffs on this man what a what a gauntlet of uh, material we've covered today (laughs) from the equality of you know love is love to Michael Myers Michael Myers is Michael Myers (laughs) All right. We appreciate y'all listening as always. Uh, that's going to do it for us on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Uh, oh wait, is that can Monica and Chandler not have kids? Yeah. Oh, I I couldn't. They end up adopting. I think. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't finish. I can't go past like season four. I've told you my thing with Friends. When I watch it, I get mad at myself for laughing at it because I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I I have no shame. I love Friends, but I still haven't been able to finish the series. <laughs> uh, 